It is one of the most popular tourist destinations, not only in Chicago, but in all of Illinois, although its use has changed numerous times since it was built more than 100 years ago. Today we're talking about Navy Pier. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. For nearly 350 years, ever since Father Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet traveled through the territory that is now Chicago in 1673, water transportation has been vital to the city's growth. Chicago grew from barely a town with 30 residents in 1829 to 30,000 in 1850 and just under 300,000 by 1870, in no small part due to advances in water and rail transportation. As many of the ships in the 1890s and early 1900s would have to navigate along the congested Chicago River to deliver freight, it wasn't long before changes needed to be made. In January of 1908, Chicago Mayor Fred Bussey appointed a harbor commission to evaluate the expansion of Chicago's port facilities. Bussey informed the city council, quote, It is a notorious fact that the Lake Commerce of Chicago, once the pride and boast of this city, has been steadily decreasing for a number of years, end quote. That same year, the Pugue Terminal Company proposed the construction of three piers north of the Chicago River. The April 11, 1909 Chicago Tribune asked, As a resident of Chicago, man, woman, or child, wouldn't it please you now and then if you could promenade half a mile or more into the lake along the broad deck of a recreation pier freely as you traverse the gravel walks of a public park? If this pier were an easy walking distance of some of the most congested sections of the city, or if it were to be reached cheaply by a crosstown line of streetcars accepting transfers from every direction, wouldn't you be tempted to spend a dime for the round trip on a hot Saturday afternoon or brilliant Sunday morning early to catch the lake wind, see the shimmering horizons of water in contrast to the skylines of the city, and hear the splash of the whitecaps running in against the foundation piles below you? When renowned architect Daniel Burnham developed his 1909 plan for Chicago, he envisioned a grand municipal pier for public recreation central to the city for all to enjoy, stating, quote, The lakefront by right belongs to the people. It should be made so alluring that it will become the fixed habit of the people to seek its restful presence at every opportunity, end quote. In October of 1910, while at a conference in London, Burnham said the following words for which he is likely best known. Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble, logical diagram once recorded will never die, but long after we are gone will be a living thing, asserting itself with ever-growing insistency. Remember that our sons and grandsons are going to do things that would stagger us. Let your watchword be order and your beacon beauty. 
Burnham and his co-author Edward H. Bennett's Plan for Chicago featured two ginormous piers stretching out into Lake Michigan, one on either side of the lakefront off downtown. While Burnham firmly believed that the lakefront need not be ruled by commerce, he acknowledged that shipping via the Great Lakes was integral to the region's economy. The Pier to the North would be at Chicago Avenue, with docks connected to the pier for use by freight steamers. To the south, a pier was planned for construction at 22nd Street, now called Cermak. Officials with the city's Harbor and Subway Commission wanted to take Burnham's lakefront concepts a step further and proposed building five piers off Chicago to relieve heavy river traffic. This would also help strengthen Chicago's position in the lake shipping industry. Unfortunately, after years of declining health, Daniel Burnham died in 1912 at the age of 65 before he could see many of his plans for Chicago come to fruition. The architect chosen by the Harbor and Subway Commission for the Municipal Pier Project in 1913 was Maine-born Charles Sumner Frost, who graduated from MIT before moving to Chicago in his 20s. Now, while I have trouble finishing puzzles, and not even big puzzles, Frost found the time and patience to design the Maine State Building for the 1893 World's Fair, 127 buildings for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, and libraries, including the Morgan Park Library on Chicago's South Side and the Adams Memorial Library in suburban Wheaton, Illinois. Charles Frost stayed true to Daniel Burnham's vision. His design for the first pier included two double-decker freight and passenger sheds in the middle of the pier to serve business needs, and he also included classically designed buildings at the beginning and end of the pier to be used as grand places for public assembly. Frost's design included terracotta ornamentation and a concert hall on the east end that measured 150 feet, by 138 feet, with a 100-foot-high domed ceiling. The dome used radial trusses shaped as half-arches to support the dome. The hall also included two 165-foot-tall observation towers. Municipal Pier Number 2 would extend more than 3,000 feet into the lake and would be 292 feet wide. One big change from the previous plans is that it would no longer be built near Chicago Avenue, but instead would be built off Grand Avenue. One of the pressing issues was how to keep the crashing waves of Lake Michigan from wearing away the pier. The solution? A substructure and foundation was built using more than 20,000 pilings made of Oregon timber. The pilings were driven 20 to 27 feet down and were secured with steel tie rods to keep the pilings in place. Those pilings would also form a barrier around the pier, which would hold a protective fill of sand, rock, and clay. Concrete was laid over the pilings, and those pilings supported the pier building's steel columns. 
By the time it was completed in 1916, it cost $4.5 million, roughly $119 million in today's money. And while it was called Municipal Pier Number 2, it ended up being the only pier of the proposed five piers to be constructed. Inflation reached 100% between 1913 and 1918, which means any additional pier would cost twice as much. Also, freight operations in Chicago had continued to become more efficient, which meant there was less need for the transport of goods via the water. Although the opening was planned for mid-July 1916, 50,000 eager Chicagoans descended on the pier on the 4th of July. According to the Tribune article the following day, quote, From time to time, articles about the pier have been printed in the newspapers, but the great holiday throng was not prepared for anything like the recreation section of the pier. Unique in the world, the bare statement that no city in the world has any structure on a waterfront that compares with the new municipal pier was apparently fully appreciated by the joyous thousands who went to take a peep at things and remained all day to enjoy themselves. Many remained to see Chicago Shoreline at night. When the U.S. declared war on Germany in April of 1917, the pier became a recruiting center. Military personnel trained on the grounds. One account claimed that the pier was, quote, Virtually an armed camp with gunboats and cruisers growling defiance from the water's side. End quote. In July of 1918, a volunteer auxiliary of the Justice Department called the American Protective League conducted a sweep of the city in search of draft dodgers. During a doubleheader with the Boston Braves, agents sealed off Cubs Park to check on the military status of draft-age men on the premises. A raid on the south side was conducted at the White City Amusement Park at 63rd Street and South Parkway, now called King Drive, during a performance by the Barnum and Bailey Circus. In all, some 200,000 men were questioned. Those detained were sent to Municipal Pier. After the war ended, the Municipal Pier offered classes to the young and old, teaching piano, painting, drama, dancing, and more. In late July 1921, the pier hosted the Pageant of Progress exhibition, an idea pushed by super-corrupt Mayor Big Bill Thompson, the subject of episode 117. His claim was, quote, We'll sell Chicago to Chicagoans and sell Chicago to the outside world, end quote. The plan was to cram the pier with 2,000 exhibits and provide entertainment. Guests could see Cyrus McCormick's first Reaper and the world's fastest steam locomotive, or go outside and watch mock Navy battles and parachutists. Here's something fun I learned while researching this topic. Two weeks before the pageant opening, super corrupt mayor, Big Bill Thompson, decided to remove the old dedication plaque on the pier. Uh, you know, the one that mentioned former Mayor Carter Harrison II, during whose administration the majority of the pier construction had occurred. Thompson's new plaque made it appear that the municipal pier was all done while he was in office. Classy. 
Activities for the pageant commenced with a four-mile-long parade through the streets of downtown, watched by approximately 30% of Chicago's population. Attendance during the two-week event was estimated to be somewhere between one and two million people, some of whom were witness to the death of a parachutist who crashed into one of the pier towers. And because Chicago, after the first pageant closed, questions arose over revenues from the fair and the use of city workers on the pier. As the pageant was a private enterprise, and brace yourself, Super corrupt Mayor Big Bill Thompson was listed as one of the officers. It had the definite air of Chicago-style corruption. The second fair one year later was a disappointment. Attendance was about half, in part because of bad weather and a transportation strike. By 1926, ads promoting water cruises departing off Municipal Pier appeared in the Chicago Tribune, urging readers to, quote, cruise the Lake Boulevards to Mackinac Island and back, end quote. For $33, roughly $530 in today's money, you can enjoy a three-and-a-half-day round-trip event, meals and berth included. There were also smaller excursion ships that used the pier to ferry passengers to Lincoln Park and Jackson Park. One of these boats, the favorite, capsized during a two-mile trip from Lincoln Park to the pier during a summer storm in 1927. 27 people, including 16 children, drowned in the accident, while at least another 50 were saved. In December of 1927, the City Council decided to change the name of Municipal Pier to Navy Pier in honor of those Chicagoans and other Midwesterners who served in the Navy during World War I. By the late 1920s and into the 1930s, attendance at the pier waned. The Great Depression was one factor. But another was that people just had more entertainment options. By 1929, movie houses were everywhere, and Chicagoans were eager to take in the latest films. When Municipal Pier opened in 1916, there were 54,000 automobiles registered in Chicago. I feel like there are that many on my street right now. By 1932, that number jumped to nearly 400,000. Those seeking a trip no longer had to arrange something on the water. They could drive to new destinations. The 1930s saw a number of trade shows at the pier, including the National Motor Truck Show, the Automotive Services Industry Show, the Flower and Garden Show, and other major exhibitions. During World War II, more than 60,000 military personnel trained at the pier on Lake Michigan, including 15,000 fighter pilots. Two former Great Lakes passenger steamers were converted into freshwater aircraft carriers. These makeshift carriers were quite a bit shorter than their ocean-going counterparts, which added some difficulty to takeoffs and landings. That would explain why more than 100 planes ended up at the bottom of Lake Michigan, with many of them still there. 
The Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, or the GI Bill, offered a way for returning veterans to get a quality education. And by November of 1947, 75,000 veterans were enrolled in Illinois colleges and universities. 11,000 of those veterans were at the University of Illinois campus in Urbana, which represented 65% of the school's pre-war enrollment. Creating a satellite campus to alleviate some of the overcrowding downstate became a necessity. As the Navy had already transformed portions of Navy Pier into a training school, it made sense to keep things in place for the new two-year University of Illinois Navy Pier campus. During the following 18 years, 100,000 students attended the Harvard on the Rocks, as it was known, until the school relocated in 1965 to Circle Campus. In 1959, a 33-year-old Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, visited Chicago and a trade show on Navy Pier as part of a goodwill tour celebrating the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway. It was the first time a reigning British monarch visited Chicago. Here's a few more fun facts. The Queen was pregnant with Prince Andrew, but hadn't announced it. The place where their vessel docked is now named Queen's Landing. And the Queen had a tooth filling replaced at the Drake. Slightly off topic, but so Chicago. In 1988, a pedestrian crosswalk was put in at Lakeshore Drive between Queen's Landing and Buckingham Fountain. In 2005, the crosswalk was removed, forcing pedestrians who wanted to cross the street toward Queen's Landing to travel a quarter mile north or south to Jackson Drive or Balbo Drive in order to use a proper crosswalk. And because Chicago ends, instead of getting in a few extra steps to cross safely, pedestrians just kept crossing Lakeshore Drive at the same location in order to save time. The crosswalk was eventually restored in 2011 at a cost of $125,000. More troubling than the cost, the work was done on a Saturday and required the closure of two lanes of Lakeshore Drive in both directions. Where was I? Oh, yeah, Navy Pier. By 1969, shipping activity slowed even more. One of the more noteworthy events involving the pier that year happened in August when a Scottish freighter docked at Navy Pier and dumped as many as 1,000 gallons of oil into Lake Michigan. Much of the freight business on the lake had fortunately shifted to port facilities south at Lake Calumet. Now, as early as 1964, Mayor Richard J. Daley had proposed redevelopment of the pier, but it kept getting pushed off for a number of reasons. There was restoration work done in 1974 and 1975, and the pier was declared a city landmark in 1977, but activities at and the use of the pier had fallen dramatically. That is, until 1978.
In the summer of 1978, the city scheduled its first Chicago Fest to be held at Navy Pier. Chicagoans and suburbanites came out in droves to this new festival at the pier. A half million people attended that first year, consuming 4,509 half barrels of beer and 31 tons of meat and poultry over by there. Attendees saw the Blues Brothers, Cheap Trick, Journey, Cool and the Gang, Chuck Berry, and Muddy Waters. At the 1982 Chicago Fest, Frank Sinatra's concert drew 25,000 people. Of course, parking was an issue, and unsurprisingly, the pier's utilities and sewage system could not keep up with the crowds. The 80s and the early 90s saw a fair amount of back and forth as to what to do with the aging pier, but by the mid-90s, everything had pretty well been sorted out for a proper renovation and reopening. In 1995, the restored pier reopened to guests. Then Mayor Richard M. Daly said, quote, Navy Pier is reclaiming its destiny, end quote. One year later, in 1996, Navy Pier attracted 4.5 million guests. In 2011, Navy Pier Inc. NPI was established as a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation designed to maintain Navy Pier as a historic public landmark and to facilitate the development of Navy Pier in accordance with reform legislation passed by the Illinois General Assembly in 2010. Also in 2011, a 30-year sustainable master plan was created to address Navy Pier's long-term environmental impact on energy, water, waste, transportation, and community. In addition to live entertainment, shops, Chicago's Children's Museum, Chicago's Shakespeare Theater, art exhibitions, and parks, Navy Pier also hosts the Crystal Garden, a one-acre indoor garden housed in a six-story glass atrium. Within the garden, you'll find over 80 live palm trees, gorgeous foliage, amazing lights and fountains. Of course, one of the most recognizable attractions at Navy Pier is the Centennial Ferris Wheel. In 2016, the Centennial Wheel debuted as part of Navy Pier's 100th anniversary, reaching heights of nearly 200 feet This Centennial Wheel is 50 feet taller than the previous one installed in 1995. With enclosed climate-controlled gondolas, guests can enjoy rides year-round, a feature that was not part of the previous Ferris Wheel. According to the NavyPier.org website, nearly 9 million people visit Navy Pier annually, making it the most visited attraction in Illinois and the Midwest. listening to today's episode about Chicago's Navy Pier. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. 
If you'd like to help the podcast, tell a friend about it and like, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. And if you don't already, please follow the show on social media as I update Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram throughout the week with articles, pictures, and behind-the-scenes whatnot to enhance the episodes. Feel free to share those posts on your social media to really help get the word out. Speaking of social media, that amazing art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Pally. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.